Thanks for listening. Join us now for Perry and Shauna Replay from 89.3 Moody Radio. Oh, man, we're taking you on a trip this morning. We are going to Oxford, England. That's right. Dr. Neil Martin is the author of Galatians Reconsidered, Jews, Gentiles, and Justification in the First and the 21st Centuries. He's one of the pastors at Oxford Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Oxford. He's a teacher at the University of Oxford, and he is the director of Be Less. It's an outreach to the students at the University of Oxford. Dr. Neil, thank you for joining us again today. I think the last time that you were here with us, you did share your faith story. But for those who are just meeting you for the first time this morning, will you tell it again? Yeah, tell us this story. Just, you know, growing up in a family without Christ, not believing Mm -hmm. in God, and just your journey from, I don't even believe this. I was never taught this to, I believe it. Yeah, I mean, I think God works in all kinds of wonderful ways, doesn't he? And I think, you know, often each of us, as we look back on our testimony of kind of walking with him, um, we would see how he has used quite ordinary circumstances in order to do an extraordinary, a supernatural thing. Um, So for me, I grew up in a non-Christian home and in my mid-teens, so probably when I was about 14, my parents chose to move me from one school to another. And the school that I moved into was just a really negative kind of environment with a lot of bullying and and difficulty. And it, it wasn't, I kind of found myself in a season of life where it was very challenging, <laughs> you know, to put it in perspective, after the day that I left my high school, I n- never was in touch with anyone who went there ever again. You know, mm-hmm. So it really it was a bad scene. But I think what that meant is that I was a young person looking for friends, looking for support. I didn't find it easy to talk about the stuff that was going on at school with my family. And I found in the little village where I grew up in the southwest of England, a church which had a youth group. It was a tiny little church. Probably 75% of the people going there were over 75 <laughs> Yeah, there was a there was a little youth group, and the minister there wanted to invest in young people, and there were probably four or five of us who were involved, and I guess it began, you know, as a, a something to do, and you know, a, an opportunity to make friends outside the school context. But I think pretty quickly I found that there was something about it that I couldn't quite put my finger on, but that I knew that I wanted and needed, and that then kind of triggered years, I guess, of kind of searching and growing. I think I, I don't know, I look back on those years and I think I must have prayed the prayer tens of times, Mm -hmm. you know, not knowing what it would even look like to actually really be a Christian. I think on reflection, God probably heard me the first time. I think it was only really in university years that I kind of realized what it was, this thing that had kind of really captivated me. You know, I would have said that I was saved, but I wouldn't have been able to tell you what I was saved from or even really what that meant. But I think as I went on through those years, I became the, I guess, the Christian with lots of first principles questions. And I'm actually... I've got a heart for that person still. I think there are lots more of them out there than we think. You know, the person who is really engaged and enjoying church and learning and growing and yet at the same time will have, you know, the the big questions, you know, is this all really just made up in my head? Or, you know, or if this is really true, how can I be sure that this God accepts me? Or what about these really difficult things that I read in the Bible? And, you know, how does this work for people who've never heard the gospel? And just, you know, a torrent of big questions like that. I think it took me many years to, to just try to find a kind of place of stability but yeah i think that 
probably the best way to summarize it is kind of like almost an immediate intuitive sense that there was something real here, but a really long process in trying to work out what that thing actually was and how to put it together with the questions that I intuitively asked as someone who came from a a non-faith background. Was there ever a point in your journey where you came to, wow, I actually believe that this happened in history and I believe that this Jesus is present in my life. Like both things clicked. Was there ever a moment where you came into that or was it just kind of a slow on ramp like you're talking about? Yeah, I I, want to make space here for the slow on ramp. I think that that's definitely a credible way to come to faith. I don't think everybody can kind of name a sort of big bang moment. And I think for me, just by personality, I'm not the kind of person, you know, so some people would go to a service and there would be an altar call or something. And it'd be like, I remember that was the moment. Whereas for me, the way that I'm wired, if that kind of thing would ever happen, I would almost have a sort of, you know, there'd be a part of myself kind of standing almost to one side of me kind of critiquing it. it was happening like is it really happening yet i find those kind of things really difficult to appropriate in the moment so i think for me actually the most precious things have almost been retrospective i am i think been on the show before and we talked a little bit about my experience of being ill from my early 20s through to my mid 30s um, which was a really formative experience for me as a christian and as a person and i think probably a couple of years into that i remember very clearly coming to a moment where i i actually met someone who had this same kinds of questions that I had wrestled with when I was a student and I remember looking at them kind of before that the bit of me that stands outside and critiques before that part had a chance to kind of get out of bed and, and start thinking what it was doing I remember looking at this person thinking wow you remind me of me and then that then raised the question like whoa where did that past tense come from like how does he remind you of you like why are you not that person anymore and so I think moments like that I kind of looked at it and thought wow yeah actually things have really changed in me I used to be the person who really was felt almost kind of schizophrenic with my faith being really passionate and committed but also with lots of questions but that changed that passed over time as I think I had the chance on the one hand to really wrestle things through to really ask myself you know what is it that these contrary voices are are saying and to read their stuff and to you know to read some of the you know major atheistic thinkers you know who would probably be kind of the the voice that you know would have been kind of more the favored voice more the normal voice within my family background and to to really engage with that but also just to get more miles on the clock in terms of trusting this god and trusting in this gospel and finding that however kind of counterintuitive it might seem this book and these things that it says are actually real in practice and the god who stands behind them is there for us to engage with in practice and it might not be some kind of big emotional bang it might not be some kind of super memorable moment but nonetheless that sense that over time i could not but say i have experienced the truth of these things Mm. i think that was that was my experience It, it was like waking up to something that already happened yeah 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 that's a really nice way of saying it Hey, we've got Neil Martin with us, and he's the author of a brand new book that we're going to get into this morning. We're going to kind of take you into a seminary class this morning. We're going to dive deep, but that's from Oxford. We've got Neil from Oxford, England, but he spent some time here in West Michigan, pastoring at Crossroads, went to Calvin Seminary, and so Neil is is a friend of mine and, and our family because we went to Crossroads for a while. But I love his story how it's like he 
he wrestled his way, he journeyed his way into the faith and got into the faith and realized, oh, I am a believer. You know, it was this journey. That's that's kind of cool. We talk about, you know, these moments of Jesus Christ, I'm going to follow you. But for Neil, it was this journey Mm -hmm. where he's learning and he's starting to believe and finally wakes up one day and says, Oh, looking back, I actually believe this. Mm-hmm. I do love the part of his story too. It's so sweet that God led him to a small or to a yeah to a small church when he didn't come from a family of faith, but had a, a desire to belong and had some you know things inside that he needed to work out. He found this youth group, yeah, and that was where his questions got answered. What a sweet grace from God for him. I just want to thank you so much for walking with my son a bit who went through his deep season of doubt and wrestling. And he's a deep thinker as well. And I know that you just, you listened to him. I think the exchange was through email, but thank you for helping Taylor because he is a robust, strong follower of Jesus who knows why he believes. And Mm -hmm. uh, you played a part in that. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm grateful to God for that. And I think we're, we're always in our Christian lives kind of paying things forward, aren't we? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was blessed by people and writers who God put into my life to help me work through my own kind of season of formation. And then it's always a delight to have the chance to kind of pass those things on. And I, I just think the the valuable takeaway here is just the realization is this is normal Christianity. You know, not everybody goes through this, but not no one does. And actually, the Bible is full of these pictures of, of people who are struggling their way towards solidity and actually you know also pictures of people who've had it and have lost it and who recover it and i think sometimes we set the bar too high we, you know we think that to be a mature christian means to be this person who has no doubts no problems all the questions are solved none of it causes them grief or sorrow i just don't think that that's realistic christianity is a wonderful but terrible set of things to to believe isn't it you know it faces us with bad news about the world and about ourselves as well as good news and we, we're going to go through times where we find that difficult to appropriate and so just being able to be comfortable with that and to be able to allow ourselves space and time but also allow others space and time to work through it um, is really really important you know I think of John the Baptist as the kind of classic example of this in the New Testament you know who comes to that point you know where he feels he has to send his followers to Jesus to say are you the one who was to come or should we expect somebody else it's like what like what a crisis to get to Mm. for someone who had you know had this massive ministry who'd given it all away and said go follow this Jesus I must become less he must become more to come to a point where he wasn't even sure that Jesus was the Christ that's a big that's a big issue and so I think you know if it can happen to John the Baptist it can happen to us Mm -hmm. but also there's a way through it for us just like there was for him particularly with the same compassionate God pastoring us has pastored him. So awesome, Neil. Thanks so much. And Neil, I know you have a book called Keep Going, Overcoming Doubts About Your Faith. Mm, It's good. So it's amazing. I think it goes over us really quick when we read through the Gospels that John the Baptist had a crisis of faith. This was after his ministry, Yeah. after he had done all these things, baptized all these people, prepared the way for Christ, and he's in prison. And he has doubts that Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah. And we think that, you know, we're supposed to have it all together if John the Baptist struggled with doubts and had wrestling toward the end of his life. You know, we're going to face some of those times as well. 
All right. Well, congratulations on your new book, Galatians Reconsidered, Jews, Gentiles, mm-hmm. and Justification in the First and the 21st Centuries. Tell us a little bit about the background of your new book. Where did it come from and what are you trying yeah. to do with it? Yeah, oh my goodness. When I hear you read the title like that, I never picture myself writing something like this. It sounds so kind of grown up. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, really, the, the goal of the book is I have been, I remain totally excited about the gospel. And this book is really an opportunity to try to communicate something of that and, and share my journey of growing in that excitement through a, a kind of in-depth study of this you know, really important letter within the New Testament. The thing began, I had the privilege of living in West Michigan for five years of my life with my family. And I did a, a master's degree at Calvin Seminary. And I remember sitting in a New Testament letters class at Calvin, doing a kind of overview of Galatians. And I remember kind Coming to a point in the letter in Galatians 4, which I'll reach you in a minute, where I just had a kind of like, uh, <laughs> like you know, what's going on? There felt like there was a kind of inconsistency in the argument or like, a you know, really a problem in the text that I couldn't understand. And so I remember put my hand up in class and said, hey, professor, like, what's going on here? And uh, the professor basically turned around to me and said, hey, that's a good question. Why don't you go and work it out? And nine years later, <laughs> you know, I've actually got something to say about it. But yeah, that was that was what it was. It was it started with the question in the classroom Mm. but the thing that kind of came to me in that moment as I started to see the way through the question and as I'm whetting your appetite here I will tell you what it is in a minute Mm -hmm. but as I started to to kind of get a sense of what this might be I just became aware that there was a really exciting kind of quest ahead here a different way of thinking about some of the content of of the letter leading us back I think to a really kind of a historic orthodox kind of reformed conclusion about what's actually going on but doing it in a quite an interesting and different way and yeah it's been that has driven me all the way through it so I had to go and get a lot better at Greek and first century history in order to answer my own question ultimately for the doctorate that I did studying this but the the sense that there was something here for the church and for me as a Christian would help me delight in those historic truths has been the thing that's kind of turned it from just an initial interesting idea into a kind of, you know, a bit of a life work. Neil, we are so excited about this new book of yours. The message of Galatians is so powerful. It's so powerful that we are set right with God by trusting in Jesus That's the gospel. That's the good news. We don't have to earn God's favor. We could never earn God's favor. We we are flawed. We are sinners. And God sent his son to live out the perfect life that we could never live, to die in our place and to rise again to bring us into the Father's favor. And so Galatians is, is just a book that has set me free many times. I mean, I'm sure that many of the people who are listening to this show will know Galatians well, but let me just kind of quickly sum up the the situation of the letter, which is pretty easy to do. Paul is writing to a bunch of relatively recently converted folk in southern Asia Minor, so that's Turkey. Probably he first planted a church there. 18 months or two years before he writes the letter. So these are still relatively baby Christians. And the key thing for kind of understanding the background is to see that, you know, this is not 
Palestine. This is not this is not Jerusalem anymore. This is a completely different world. You know, this is the the Greco-Roman world. This is a world of idols and of the multiplicity of different gods and all kinds of things. Roman emperor worship, all that kind of stuff. That's what these these Gentiles are, are kind of immersed in. So Paul has come to them with his gospel and wonderfully people have been converted and he's planted a little network of churches here. Probably you can read about this in Acts 13 and 14. So I think that the churches he's writing to are most likely the churches of that first missionary journey that Paul makes if you're into the Acts story. So anyway, 18 months later, he writes back to them, but something has happened. What's happened is some Jewish Christians, Paul himself is a Jewish Christian, and some other Jewish Christians have shown up in this area, and they have come to his converts with like a Christianity upgrade, which is, Mm. okay, you guys need to also keep the Jewish law. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If you want to believe in the God of Abraham, why don't you do the stuff that people who've believed in the God of Abraham for millennia have done? Keep the feasts, be ritually pure, keep the law of Moses, get circumcised, all of that good stuff and join the family. And Paul writes to them in that situation. So you can imagine, you know, different ways that that letter could have played out. But the thing you wouldn't imagine is that what he says actually consistently all the way through the letter is he diagnoses their problem as going back to something that they've done before. And when you come across that, you should just be thinking, as I did in the classroom, like, what? Like, what do you mean going back to something that they've done before? Because if these people were gentile pagans before then becoming more jewish is not a return to something that they have any experience with and yet paul says this again and again so an example that many of us will know in galatians 5 1 paul says this it's for freedom that christ has set us free stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery now the trick there is again isn't it what on the in the world does that mean like, why does he say again there when you read augustine commenting on this passage he he does kind of like the whatever the latin equivalent of kind of like uh? <laughs> you know, he, he freaks out and he says you know paul can't possibly mean they're getting circumcised again that's one of the things you can't do again by definition the passage that i read in that classroom is in galatians 4 and here it's even clearer paul says formerly when you did not know god You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. So we're imagining here idol worship, as I said, and emperor temples and all this kind of stuff. And you were enslaved to all that. And then he says, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? And again, you should just be thinking like, what are you talking about? Like That just doesn't make any sense. In what possible way can embracing the Jewish law be a return to the former things that of their kind of pagan religious past. And as you start to look at it, actually, from soup to nuts, from chapter one to chapter six, that idea that they're going back to something that they've done previously is just kind of impregnating the whole text of the letter. And so the basic question of the book is, why does he do that? Like, what in the world is going on? What makes him think that returning to what they've done before is an appropriate description of what's happening to them now? I think the default mode of the human heart is to try to earn God's love, to earn God's favor, to think that God is somebody that we have to get his approval from. And so in that context, in their pagan religion, they did things to try to earn the favor of the gods. And now they're being told, you need to do these Jewish things in order to earn the favor of the Jewish God. I, I think that's what you're saying. 
Yeah, and yeah, I think you're kind of right and kind of not. And that's right. where the interest of all of this comes from. So I think you're absolutely right. Let's start where you started, because I think you're right on the money. I think that there is actually a sense in which it is the default mode of human beings to think this way, and that that is actually the nature of the pagan past that these people experienced. So a great way to see it, I mean, there are all kinds of places that you could go, but if we do think that actually what's happening in Acts chapter 13 and 14 is the background, great little illustration of this would be in Acts 14. Again, you and your listeners might remember the story of Paul in Lystra. Paul and Barnabas go to this place, which is just in southern Galatia, and they meet this guy who has been lame from birth and in the power of God, they heal him. And then we get this extraordinary scene where the people of Lystra basically come out believing that that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes and they bring them wreaths and they sacrifice or they try to sacrifice a bull to them and all this kind of stuff. It's an extraordinary scene, isn't it, of kind of a very different sort of world. Actually, I think I misread this for the longest time. It sounds a bit like a kind of religious carnival, doesn't it? It's like, oh, wonderful. Zeus and Hermes have come. Let's have a party. But actually, that's not what's happening here at all. If, if you know something about what's going on in the background, just a few miles down the road from Lystra in a place called Tyana, that is the place where the, the flood myth of Asia Minor is based. This is kind of like in Asia Minor, the reflection of what we actually have in our biblical text in the flood in Genesis. And uh, in their version of it, they have believed that Zeus and Hermes came down from heaven and they disguised themselves as ordinary human beings and they went round knocking on the doors of all the people who lived there looking for hospitality and they didn't get any. They went from town to town, from village to village, nobody let them in. Finally, they show up at this kind of little residence somewhere out in the sticks and they meet this elderly couple called Philemon and Baucis who do welcome them in and at this point Zeus and Hermes reveal themselves to actually be gods and they say okay Philemon and Baucis because you showed us hospitality we won't kill you but we will destroy everybody else and then they wipe the area clean with a flood and it gives you a bit of a sense of what's happening here in Acts you know that actually the arrival of Zeus and Hermes is something to wow suddenly we better do the right thing and offer these guys lots of hospitality because if we don't they might destroy us but also it gives you a bit of a sense of the underlying kind of religious psychology doesn't it that you believe that your relationship to the gods is a fearful one you believe that your relationship to the gods is one where you kind of have to guess what they're thinking and if you get it right then everything will be all right but if you don't then it won't it's an environment in which there are things that you need to do in order to placate the gods in order to make them give you the things that you want and if you get it right you'll maximize your chances of blessing but if you get it wrong you may well be cursed and that's the kind of background in which these people that Paul meets come from so that's the thing to kind of have in mind then I think that's where it's easy to make a misstep because what we've always assumed i think about galatians is that when these jewish christians show up that's exactly what they're trying to do as well they're coming along saying oh you've got to keep the law because that's the way to keep the god of israel sweet but actually i don't think that paul says that you see let's imagine just for a a thought experiment here. I'm not going to say this is exactly what's happening, but imagine these Jewish Christians are actually not far away from Paul in terms of what their actual theology is. Let's assume that they are good Jews who believe, like every Jew should, that God is a God who loves us because he loves us, right? He loves us because he's gracious. He moves towards us because that's just the kind of God that he is, not because of anything that's any redeemable value that he sees in us. And imagine that these guys just think that actually what Paul's 
Christians in Galatia need to do is just kind of get with the program of the way that that God has always been worshipped, getting circumcised and keeping the feast and all this kind of stuff. What I want us to do is think, imagine how that message would have been heard by these people who from their mother's knees have been told that the way that you interact with the gods and the reason that you do religious festivals and the reason that you go through all of your various rituals is to make the gods like you and give you what you're hoping for for the future. My kind of insight, I guess, is just to say, look, you don't need to believe that these Jewish people thought that in the slightest to still recognize that the Galatians would have heard it that way. <laughs> they would have received it that way because it was just absolutely second nature to them. Does that make any sense, by the way, before I press on? Yeah, the, the Jewish preachers weren't trying to get them to think they had to earn God's favor, but because of their background, that's they would have how, thought it anyway. That's how they heard it. I mean, isn't this just what we do all the time? We're always looking for the system, for the formula. Okay, if I yeah. do A and B, then I'm going to get C, right? You know, and we're we're looking for just set me on the track and let me go, man. And the goodness of God, the grace of God, honestly, is that He says, "There's no formula, there's no track, mm-hmm. there's just me." Mm-hmm relationship to me, proximity to me, trusting in me. This is where you experience all that life was meant to be. Yeah. And I think this really is making me realize how much I've been influenced by the American culture. Our American culture is all about earning. It's all about performance. It's all about achievement. It's all about climbing the ladder. It's all about me. And I don't think that's just a brand new thing in America. And that has has impacted all of us that we think we relate to God in that way. Mm -hmm. It's all about power and control. And God is God and we are not. And accepting Jesus Christ for who he is, is relinquishing control of our own life and saying, I'm not going to try to be the God of my life anymore. I'm actually going to trust every moment every decision to you, and I'm going to follow you. So, Neil, we get this idea when we read the book of Galatians and a lot of the New Testament that, you know, Jesus good, Jewish law bad. But you're saying something different. You're saying Jesus good, Jewish law good. So explain that for us. I think we need to listen to Paul on this. So if you just jump into Galatians 2, famous passage here, Galatians 2, 15 and 16, Paul says, he's talking to Peter here, and he says, we who are Jews by birth and not simple Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is kind of the crux of the gospel, isn't it? This really wonderful truth that we're not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. But the thing which is really interesting about the way that Paul says that is he actually says that he and Peter agree on this. He says, we who are Jews by birth know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. And then later on in chapter three, he then says, it's not just me and you, Peter. It's all of us Jews. Everyone who has this Abrahamic inheritance should know that actually the whole way in which God made himself known to Abraham and had a relationship with Abraham is all on the basis of faith. And so we have those memorable words when it talks about Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
So I don't doubt that there were loads of Jews, just like there are loads of non-Jews all around the world at this time and now, who had got into that default mode of thinking that actually, oh, the way we do make God love us is by what we do. But I think what Paul's trying to say is that actually Jews are kind of uniquely protected against that if they just listen to their own story but all the way from the very beginning all the way back to the abraham story they've been kind of steeped in this truth that god doesn't love us because we're lovely god loves us because of who he is and so if you read the verse again it's really striking what jumps out he says we who are jews by birth and not sinful gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law so i think his point is look if you were a Jew, you should just know this. It's like 101. Of course, you're not justified by the works of the law. But if you're a Gentile, like his readers, you absolutely don't know that. You've totally missed that memo through your upbringing. Everything that you've been told actually about the way that you interact with the gods is all based on exactly the opposite on the assumption that you are justified by the works of the law. And so this is the reason why I think ultimately Galatians makes sense you see the problem with the kind of classic reading that says that actually judaism here is the problem and paul is trying to guard people from this jewish past that he himself has left behind is that actually earlier on in chapter two we find paul sharing the right hand of fellowship with a whole bunch of law observant jews like if this really is this toxic thing that you're telling us that it is why in the world would you do that or if we jump back to Acts, we find Paul seems to be really happy to go to the temple. He seems to be really happy to observe the Jewish law when the time comes. So are we saying, is that just complete pragmatism and inconsistency on his part? Does he say one thing to one person, another thing to another, just according to what suits him? I think actually what's going on is it's all about who you offer this Jewish law to. If you give Jewish law observances to Jews to keep, or they ought to know, going all the way back to the very earliest parts of their story, that God isn't impressed by that. God isn't remotely impressed by circumcision or going to the temple or keeping the feasts or, you know, keeping the Sabbath or whatever. God loves us because he loves us. But if you give those things, feasts and festivals and Sabbaths and circumcision to a bunch of Gentiles, they will just immediately read it the way they've always read those kind of rituals. Uh, and they will think, oh, brilliant. Here's a way to keep our new God suite, just like we kept our old God suite. And that's the problem, because immediately then they've totally annihilated the heart of the gospel, right? The heart of the gospel is it's God who bridges that divide between mm. him and us from his side. There's nothing that we can do to kind of clamber up that ladder, that it's God who's clambered down the ladder in order to come and meet us and to deliver us. So for me, and we'll talk a little bit in a minute about why I think this is so relevant to today, but I think this is a fabulously liberating vision of what's happening here in Paul's mind, that I don't think he suddenly is, believes that the Jewish law itself is toxic, you know, wouldn't that be a terrible thing for him to say that actually after all these, you know, centuries of observing the law of Moses, his big realisation is actually all of it was just evil and totally unhelpful. That's not his programme in Galatians. He wants to say that it's a, it's a schoolmaster pointing us towards Christ. Now Christ has come things have changed but it doesn't mean that the law itself and that being jewish itself is now somehow fundamentally awful i think what he's trying to say is look please just don't give this to your gentile neighbors because if you do they'll just assume it's the kind of religion that they've always known and mess themselves up and miss the point they'll miss christ in the process neil my friend you are stretching us dr <laughs> neil martin 
You know, I find it, <laughs> Neil, you mentioned, and Neil mentioned that not getting the memo, that it's all grace and we can turn it into works. We can turn our religion, our faith into works. Like we got to earn God's favor. And I can relate with, you know, growing up in the church, but not getting the memo that it's not about my performance. It's about Jesus' perfect performance. And I can identify, especially in my teenage years and even into my adulthood, thinking that, yeah, it's grace, but it's also performance, you know? And it's not. Yeah. It's all grace. And it's it's about responding to the grace. Mm-hmm. You know, because we're loved, we obey. But we never obey to get his love. Right. And And there's times I think, man, I didn't get that memo. Why is all of this relevant to God's people now yeah. in the 21st century? Great question. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know whether you guys can kind of relate to this at all, but I, I will make a confession to you here that, you know, I used to find Galatians quite a difficult letter to find the relevance because I wasn't feeling tempted to do what the Galatians themselves had done. They seemed to be really drawn to this infrastructure of Jewish laws and that just wasn't me as a person. And so I looked at this and thought, well, maybe I, I can take a pass on Galatians and go elsewhere. And it felt like a pretty niche thing. It felt like here's some kind of weird in-housey debate between, you know, early Jewish Christians in the first century, Paul on one side and others on another side, and they seem to just kind of disagree. But, you know, that's not the world I live in, so maybe this isn't for me. Reading it the way that I'm encouraging us to think about it here, I want to try and help us see that it shifts from being, like, marginally relevant at best to being maximally relevant exactly to our situation. So we don't live in a world now where we are going down to the temple of Zeus, right? Or, you know, or, you know, laying out votive offerings for Artemis in order to try and make our, you know, our crops productive and all this kind of thing like Paul's audience were. But if you think about what they were actually trying to achieve by making these offerings, by going through these religious rituals, the kind of people that Paul and met in Galatia were basically trying to control the future. They were trying to make the future give them what they perceive themselves to deserve. So at the beginning of the agricultural cycle each year, they would go down to the local temple and they would say, okay, Asclepius, you know, here's my offering. If you bless my crops, I'll come back with an even bigger one at the end of the year, you know, quid pro quo type thing. The idea being, look, if I do this, it's going to maximize my chances of my crops being successful. And that's what I want the future to look like. So that's what I'm going to do. Well, if you think about modern life, modern Western life, it lacks the temples and the the kind of religious, seemingly religious exterior. But the underlying motive for the way that we live is pretty much exactly the same. So much of what we do is all oriented around trying to just get some little bit of control, Mm -hmm. some little bit of purchase on the future that we perceive ourselves to deserve, whether it's the way we spend our money, how we invest our um, resources for a pension in the future, how we polish up our social media profile in order to get the kind of network of friends we think we want, how to invest in our physical appearance and in our fitness, how we invest in our career. We're always obsessively making touches of the wheel in the present in order to try to maximize the chances of blessing in the future. Mm. And I think Paul is basically trying to say to us, look, if you are steeped in that kind of culture like these Galatians were, we are fundamentally extremely vulnerable to the kind of problem that he perceived. It's not that we won't 
receive Christ or respond to the gospel message. But once we've received it, we are very vulnerable to being the kind of people who will kind of retain as the underlying mechanism for how we think the thing works, everything that we've heard from the culture all around us. And so we will think about church, we will think about prayer, we will think about devotional time, we will think about the future, all with that same set of inherited assumptions that come so naturally to us that we hardly even think about them. And yet, in the context of Galatians, they make Paul use some of the most extreme warnings in the entirety of the New Testament. You know, this is the letter where he says to his readers, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. He says to them in Galatians 5, I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. So what he's saying is, look, if you bring into your Christian life things which trigger that set of kind of quasi-pagan assumptions, you could completely like blow away your connectedness to the gospel. Like you could think you believe it, but you wouldn't actually be believing it at all. And to me, that just feels like it's a portrait of the modern Western church. And we could talk a little bit about how that might actually play out in practice. But I just think we're so much closer to these guys culturally than we realize. And I think we're incredibly blind to how much of that kind of quasi-pagan set of assumptions with which we live and kind of interact every day, how much they are affecting our, our faith every moment. And I think Paul just wants to say, look, you can't live like this. But to be a Christian, you have to find a way to hit eject on that set of assumptions. Mm. You have to be people who are able to live the Christian life looking up to him for his provision and trusting that what he gives you is good because he names it so. I think one of the evidences that we do think this way when you talk about like just wanting to control our future is when anything goes wrong in our life. We get a diagnosis, a relationship that was supposed to be forever is suddenly, you know, fragile, whatever the case may be. We have this reaction towards God of like, wait, just a minute. I gave my life to you. You're supposed to, you know. Yeah, that's totally right. And, uh, you know, the stance, and it's incredibly challenging for us, but also I think really liberating, the stance that Paul is modeling here in this letter is one in which we receive as good from God what he gives not necessarily what seems mm. good on the exterior. That's such a hard thing to process, isn't it? And okay. and I know we'll really, that touches us right at the place where we hurt, doesn't it, in mm. terms of the tragedies in our lives now or in the past. And yet for me, that was such an important lesson of being ill for all those years, of realising that actually our role as Christians, the Bible just repeatedly calls us sheep, doesn't it? It says, yeah, it's obvious in the image there, like what's the difference between a sheep and a shepherd? Well, there are lots of answers, but one key answer is like a sheep is only two feet tall it can't see what's ahead like it can't see beyond the next bush beyond the next wall it it can't see where the good pasture is and so when the shepherd who's six feet tall and who really can see sets off towards the place of his choosing it will often involve going through places from the sheep's perspective look like insane decisions and yet the sheep has to be able to trust and say i I name what the shepherd says is good as good rather than just insisting that the blessing that i i require is blessing from my own perspective and that insistence on blessing from our own perspective is a fundamentally pagan way of living and thinking and paul is just trying to say if you can't be free of that you don't have it you you don't have the gospel he wants us not just to be saved by grace but to live by it so it's an incredibly potent message i think i think it's really easy to 
look at God as a cosmic vending machine, or I see myself like rubbing a genie bottle and, and trying to get out of it what I want. And that creeps into my faith and we don't manipulate God. We Mm -hmm. can't manipulate God. And yet I find myself doing this. And what I hear you saying, Neil, and what I, what I hear Neil saying is that we just look up to God and we are completely helpless and we are completely in need of him and we cannot manipulate him and we can trust that everything that comes from him is good because he is good and he loves us because he is love. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to Barry and Shauna Replay. To learn more, text us at 800-968-8930. That's 800-968-8930.